Hey there, welcome to XR Industry Leaders with ArborXR. My name is Brad Scoggin, and I am the CEO and one of three co-founders of ArborXR. We've had the opportunity of working with thousands of companies since 2016. And we've learned a ton about what it takes for XR to be successful in your organization. And I'm Will Stackable, co-founder and CMO. This podcast is all about interviewing the leaders who are on the ground making XR happen today. True pioneers in the space, from Amazon, Walmart, and UPS, to Coke, Pfizer, and beyond to uncover the pitfalls, lessons learned, and secrets that you can use to help grow XR in your organization. Well, Annie, we're excited to uh, sit down and visit with you today. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Definitely, definitely. Uh, Well, I always love to start by asking kind of about your personal journey uh, into XR. Yes. uh, Well, it it is kind of different because I don't come from a development background or an art background, which many of my peers do. But I was actually working at a company in marketing um, where I was introduced to virtual reality just by a coworker. He had kickstarted um, the original Oculus Kickstarter and brought his DK1 into the office. And we got really excited. Well, I say we, he and I, there weren't many other people who were as excited as us. Um, And we thought it'd be a great opportunity to think of new ways we could use the technology for our business. Now, granted, this was like 2013, early 2014, and a lot of people were not ready for that at this time. So uh, we started a meetup group in Atlanta, which is where I am based. And we had over 200 people show up to the first meetup event. And we were not expecting that at all. That was July 2014. In 2014? July 2014, we had like put it out on Reddit. We partnered with a gaming bar just because we knew maybe the audience had some overlap. Um, And then I guess because I had started the meetup, people started coming to me locally asking how their businesses could get involved with the technology. And there really weren't any service providers in Atlanta at the time that were catering to that market. And so I started a consultancy initially. Um, And then after working through use cases with those companies, they started asking how they could actually make the products. And I saw an opportunity. And so I started to grow my business from there and hired contractors, which turned into full-time, which then grew to a full team. So um, we keep it uh, pretty pretty specialized. We're about 20 people here in Atlanta right now, um, but working with some of the biggest companies in the world. That's very cool. I always love to hear about the entrepreneurial journey and the pain. Um, Did the DK one like make so many you nauseous? <laughs> Did the DK one make me nauseous? Absolutely. Yeah, yes. Made, I don't. I don't think I actually threw up, but yeah, yeah. I, I remember some maybe a roller coaster or some kind of experience where I had to pull it off because I was gonna. I was gonna show. Yeah, I don't know why everyone thought the best first experience that they should show to people was roller coasters. Like, if that makes people sick in the <laughs> physical world, why would you want to put? someone in that in the virtual world but um yeah i know brad you mentioned about like the pain of starting a company i gave the like very happy abbreviated version of the the journey there were definitely some difficulties especially starting in the space that early um a lot of challenges and not a lot of money at first that's for sure i think that's the beginning of all of our journeys right like not a lot of money we're just and that's what um (laughs) Yeah, right. When you look back, you you try to say, well, that's what that's what made us stronger. Maybe is not having resources. That's what we tell ourselves. Yeah. Uh, Well, maybe kind of walk us through a little bit of uh, you know how how the company matured and and how you you know got to where you are today, working with these big companies, and even the focus 
I mean, it sounds like maybe from the beginning you were focused on the enterprise space, but now very focused in, in training and maybe walk us through that journey just a little bit. Yeah, I mean, as we talked about earlier, like starting in 2014, you really just would take any job you could um, as long as it was somewhat VR adjacent. And so uh, we definitely lacked focus at the beginning, um, pretty much taking anything anyone would, would hand us. Now, enterprise was always our target, but we did do a lot more marketing engagements, especially since that was uh, my personal background. Um, when I first started the business. So um, we would do a lot of product product visualization in VR. Um, we would do 360 video, which we no longer really do much of. Um, we would do more like gamified marketing experiences as well. We did one for the Super Bowl several years ago, which was really fun. Um, but we start, saw a lot of parallels with training and games. And since the majority of my team comes from gaming or game development backgrounds, it just seemed like a really natural fit. And plus the use cases for VR training uh, are so fantastic and there's so many ways that they are directly impacting businesses and showing direct results that it it's oftentimes the the most provable way to succeed when implementing vr in an enterprise or organization excuse me uh so i i think that just the evolution of of how people use the technology and then us seeing those opportunities align really well with our staff um made us want to focus more just being pulled in so many different directions, it's really easy to say yes to everything, but then very difficult to complete everything you say yes to. So we found a lot of power in the past several years in saying no. Um, and while I hate it sometimes because I want to do everything, it has made us a much stronger company and be able to deliver better products by focusing on training. Yeah, that's great. I noticed on one of your blogs, you, some of your advice was saying no. I thought that was really good. It, it is hard to say no. Sometimes I wonder why, I mean, have we gotten so weak as a society that we just can't say no? Like, why is it so painful, even in personal things, to say no? Uh, I mean, it might be a personality thing too. Like, I am a people pleaser. Like, I want to see people be happy. And so telling people no, I feel like is um, is difficult just because I want people to be happy. But uh, in thinking about the bigger picture, that's how I have been able to personally say no and not feel as bad about it. Um, also, I think coming up with good strategies and how to say no, like, you're not saying no because you don't want to do it. It's just not the right fit. Um, maybe you don't want to do it. But uh, coming up with something that'll maintain that relationship and keep the door open so that they will think of you in the future is important too. Um, so I don't know. I know is probably one of the hardest things for us to say, but one of the most powerful. Yeah, I agree. And I think probably early on in the in the startup journey, you kind of have to say yes more. And as you get more experience and a little more traction, you can say no. But maybe tell us too. So today, future is today. Like, what is your primary core focus today? Our focus is VR training. Um, yeah, I, I we have a couple other things going on, but I think everything is pretty much training adjacent, um, or at least employee education adjacent. So even if it's not like hard skills training, um, it is still about familiarization or, or something to do with the organization or the company to help employees succeed. Um, we, we do have an augmented reality side of the business as well, which um, I think 
has been a really great asset to have because we can use some of the same uh, models and um, content across different devices, both in a VR and AR setting. Um, so like one of our clients on the AR side does uh, product visualization, but then they have a training component to it. So um, you can access via an app anywhere in the world information on their machinery, as well as seeing it in front of you on a job site. Um, so it's ways to like integrate educating the consumer or your employees on um, on the products or the services that you provide. So I think all of it is adjacent to training, even if it's not always direct. Yeah, that's very cool. I mean, we're obviously seeing a ton of traction in training. Uh, are you focused on any, on any specific vertical? Um, <laughs> that's a great question as well. We've, um, we've worked in quite a few verticals. Um, manufacturing has probably been the biggest. Um, there are a lot of common themes that that have to do with safety in the manufacturing space, which uh, we've been having some great experiences with. Um, we've been now into aviation. Um, we've, I guess, food manufacturing is an adjacent to manufacturing, um, retail, and architecture, engineering, and construction. So those are probably the biggest ones that we're involved with right now. So the other thing that's always uh, funny is when I talk to my parents about VR, they're always talking about the television, you know, so they saw a TV ad and it's always, it's always games. And sometimes I think the real exciting use cases in my mind and the ones that are starting to take off around us are, are these enterprise use cases. It's the training, it's manufacturing. I'm curious, <clears throat> a lot of our, a lot of the companies we work with at some point decide to do a proof of concept or a pilot and there can be a lot of confusion and, and there's not a lot uh, out there to, to know how to do that well. What, what have you seen helps companies be successful in a pilot project and how do you work with companies to help make those pilot programs more successful? Right. I, I definitely believe the, the right internal champion is very important when you are trying to make a pilot, especially with a large organization. Um, we've, we've been lucky to have a lot of really great ones, but it takes a person to really understand the fact that VR is still highly experimental um, and that there is so much yet to be defined, which can be scary, but also really exciting. So framing it in a way that, yes, you are going to make a proof of concept that is going to hopefully be effective within your business is a, a great thing, but also you get to help define something that hasn't been defined for either your organization or even your industry and beyond. Um, and I think if you can really get that into the mindset of the people you're working with within these organizations, the project's going to be a lot more successful. Um, I'd say timing as well is really important. Making sure that you have way more time than you think you are going to need um, is a big one. Uh, setting expectations really early about what the graphics are going to look like, because as you said, everyone is seeing these amazing gaming commercials that are basically out there to try and sell you the hardware for for Christmas or someone's birthday and it's awesome but that is that is a blessing and a curse because it's what our clients see when they are just casually watching TV um it might set unrealistic expectations for what you can do with a proof of concept timeline or budget uh, but it's also a really great thing because they are getting exposed to the technology and the hype around it and the excitement around it um, before they use it. And sometimes that's one of the reasons that they want to use it at their organization is because they're like, oh, this is so cool. How can we use this at our company? So I think those commercials are like 
really great for some reasons, a little tough for other reasons. And as long as expectations are set up in the beginning and you have the right champion, it is going to be successful. Do you have any specific pilot programs that you were a part of that you could talk about? I think it might be helpful, or if not, something that you could, could you describe in, in general how a typical pilot project flows? Yes, um, there actually is one I think I could probably talk about um, just because they talked about it at a conference last week and men- mentioned us. So I'm like, hey, you did it. I can do it too. We're always looking for <laughs> right? those. Right? They said it publicly. So now we can say they did, it. Right? Yes. And um, yeah, it was at a conference. So, um, so we did a really awesome pilot program with Mars Wrigley. Um, and I think that that was a, a great success because largely in part of the people we were working with there, they were really excited about um, the innovative technology and opportunities that VR had to offer. And they did understand that it, it was experimental and that we were going to be doing something that, um, that may have some concessions. Not everything we define in the beginning is going to be exactly as it is in the end, but that's one of the points of the proof of concept. So that was great. Um, We really do start out with um, some great pre-production sessions. We do information intake. We took a lot of reference imagery of of the machinery we were going to be working with, as well as talking with the subject matter experts that are already training or performing these actions that we were going to be replicating in VR. And then um, we kept in communication with them throughout the development process. So making sure that the design in VR was comfortable and also realistic enough to the job at hand. Um, for, For their project and for a couple others, we don't just show how to do something correctly. We also show what can happen if the employee does it incorrectly. And that can be um, a really impactful way to make sure employees think twice before they do something incorrectly on the physical job site. So that was really important to them. And then I think just listening to them throughout the process and, and hearing what the goals of the experience were, it was really to show its effectiveness so that they could expand the project. And everyone's goals for a proof of concept are going to be different, although that's a pretty common in one. Um, I think it was really successful because we're continuing to work with them. But um, I, I think just having the flexibility with them and being able to just go back and forth in a very collaborative way was one of the main reasons it was successful. What's the typical timeline for a pilot project like that? That one was pretty quick. Um, that one was about six to eight weeks. Um, which oh wow that's fast wow. very fast, yeah. um, fast yeah. now it wasn't a, a, is that normal or is that an outlier um I would say usually we have two to three months for a pilot if we keep the scope limited so this one was expedited but it was for a reason um, there was a particular meeting with leadership that was happening on a hard date that that couldn't be moved and so uh, instead of rushing the design process we constrained the scope to what was realistic um, and I mean, everyone always wants things really fast. So um, that is another part of our job is to explain, well, we can't necessarily do it faster, but we can limit what is in the experience. And so having those conversations is something that I am very familiar with. Um, but but we were able to, to do it in time. And another thing that we were able to do with this one was uh, create like a video export of the experience. Not everyone is going to have access to the headset. So we did kind of like a picture in picture video of someone using the headset going through the whole experience um, with the the good day scenario and the bad day scenario. And um, 
being able to show that for people who don't have access to the headset so that they can still be included in the conversation. Uh, but I would say that was a, an expedited timeline, usually three to four months for a, a small pilot. We've actually done some pilots that are closer to like six months, um, just depending on, on the scale of it. But I would say typically anything less than two months is, is a little aggressive. You said that uh, you'd considered a, a success is there anything specific or any aha moments that you feel like that their team had where, where you could tell, okay, this is really, this is tracking? Yeah, it was when uh, we showed it to employees who were not a part of the design process and they didn't want to take it off. <laughs> that was exciting. Wow. That's huge. That's huge. Yeah. So just so I can visualize what, when they put on the headset, what, where were they? Were they in a factory or? Yeah, they were the in one of their facilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they're able to visualize something that in a way that, and they're able to go through, and you said there's a good day and a bad day. So there's well, different scenarios. It's really just if you do it correctly, if you do the process correctly, then um, you, you succeed. If you do it incorrectly, you do see a direct physical impact of the incorrect action that you took. Yeah. And there are several clients that, that we do have, that implemented, um, I think it is very effective. Not, it's not for everyone, but um, really showing people firsthand what can go wrong is is important in a safe environment like VR. I think that's huge. I mean, Jeremy Balenson from Stanford, uh, professor, talks about how VR is great for anything that's difficult, dangerous, or expensive to simulate in real life. And um, yeah, so so you were seeing some of those aha moments when they're putting the headset on, and it's something's clicking. Yeah. Yep. I think. Yeah. The Usually if people get frustrated or they don't understand what they're doing, like they're very vocal about it. And so when they're quiet and they're in it for a long time and they're still performing actions, that's when we know it's working. Um, so we have been doing a lot of work and I have an amazing designer on my team, Elijah, who has been doing a ton of work in making the experience as smooth and as seamless as possible for first-time VR users. A lot of our audiences, I know I mentioned the verticals we're in earlier, are not necessarily going to be um, personal VR users or they wouldn't have access to that normally. And so, or maybe they're not gamers either. I think there's a great um, translation over with like how to control a gaming console to how to control VR hand controllers. So um, if they don't have that experience, we have to teach them usually in like a minute or less how to use the controllers, um, how to make sure that everything is clear and the actions are clear and make everything as intuitive as possible. So um, we've been working really hard on making sure that we kind of standardize that for our own company so that that's something that we can bring into every project moving forward. But every single thing we do, whether it's a proof of concept or a full scale development has that tutorial at the beginning where we have to make sure that they know what, what to do. And one of the main benefits of, of doing VR training is to reduce like, well, a couple of things, but uh, the, the actual trainer headcount, you're able to train more people in um, a faster capacity. So if you have to have someone on the outside explaining to the trainee how to use VR, it's not really helping, um, which is why it's so important to spend time in the tutorials. You mentioned reducing trainer time. Do you have any stats you could share uh, just on ROI or on uh, impact of reduction of training time or reduction of employee count or yeah we um 
we are actually in the middle of, of going through that with a customer now, so we don't actually have the stats yet. Um, I know that's like one of the hardest things in VR right now is getting the stats. There's three different clients we're working with right now on a few different stats. So we'll talk next year and I will hopefully have them for you. Um, but yeah, training time is something we're measuring. Um, the reduction in the need for a, a physical trainer is another. And then um, the... Uh, well, two more, retention of information, and then uh, the scoring and the comparison between classroom training and VR training on scores. So there's one project we're doing where we are directly measuring the exact same questions that they are asked in the classroom versus in the middle of a VR simulation as they're going through it. Um, and so that one I'm really excited to see the comparison of. That's exciting. I mean, to me, there is a lot of data out there. You know, we all do the research when we're raising money <laughs> years ago, right? Like the the efficacy of XR and training. But I do think it is so powerful. I mean, even, even for us, Will and I, who we're in this every day, when we get to sit down with people like you who are on the front lines and you say, like, I mean, this is what we're seeing. I mean, we're seeing it firsthand. It just hits differently than reading, you know, the article, uh, the research article. Um, so I, we appreciate you sharing that. Uh, there's still, I guess, you know, something we, we'd be interested in hearing about from your perspective as an app developer, you know, you're going through these, these proof of concept and hopefully then moving beyond and scaling. What are some of the, the main pain points you see, uh, with, with the enterprise end user adopting XR? Yeah, I, um, I definitely know one, I know y'all are Arbor XR, so I'm going to give you a big shout out. Um, but the, the fact that we can use kiosk mode with you guys is like, incredible before that because i mean i i've been in this for eight years like before we could do that it was so so hard you couldn't put anyone in vr without having another person in the room to walk them through how to go i mean go to the app library go to unknown sources go to the drop down like click on it it looks sketchy but i promise it's not like just the that was a huge one that now is like resolve. So thank you. I, I would like to say thank you personally for that one. Um, now other ones, I mean, the, the, just getting people to put on the headset is the hardest part. That's not really anything that we can control. Um, but I think convincing people that VR is effective for all the like naysayers or curmudgeons at companies who are like, we've done it this way forever. Why would we make a change? Um, typically, once they put the headset physically on their head, like we're good. So just getting the headset on someone's head is a big struggle still um, for people who are who just really don't want to do it. Um, I guess I'm trying to think of other pain points in, in development, just the the optimization of models and environments is something we're always working on. Um, we went to from everyone wanting PC VR to now everyone wanting mobile VR. And so expectations from some of our longer standing customers are still at the PC VR level, which you literally can't do with a mobile VR headset in some capacity. And so um, just optimization and, and making our systems as efficient as possible to be able to support mobile VR. Um, even just making the right headset suggestion is difficult sometimes. Sometimes um, we are pretty agnostic with what we do. So if a client has a really strong feeling or has already invested in a certain type of hardware, like we are more than willing to adapt to that. Um, we've had experience with pretty much every major headset on the market over the past 10 years. So um, we're, that doesn't bother us, but when they have 
strong feelings that that don't really make logical sense, um, then we have some problems. So, I mean, there are things that that every production studio is dealing with, but those are just a few of them. I have this distinct memory as you're talking. We were on a call with a a big company, like a legit company. And the guy behind, behind, behind the guy and his background was just stacks of boxes. And we asked, what are all those boxes? And he said, oh, those are headsets. Oh, what are they doing there? Oh, whenever we need to install a new app, we have to have the employees ship them back to me. And I plug cables in, I install the app and I send it back. (laughs) And I was just thinking, that's still kind of where we are in some way. I mean, we've come a little bit, that was was about a year or so ago. But that, that for us was a big aha moment of, okay, this is why we're building what we're building. I'm curious from your end, you're constantly working with building apps and distributing versions and getting feedback. Could you talk just a little bit about your content pipeline uh, and how you go from build to customer to deployment in the field with actual headsets and real world use cases? Yeah, definitely. Um, so it is still an evolving process, I will say. It always is going to be. But um, we do have a, a process with our builds and we'll just have a I guess, a a set schedule depending on the customer. So we like to deliver builds every other week if it's like an active project. Sometimes we'll do it more frequently, although that really crunches the QA time. Um, But, and then once something goes into maintenance, it'll be much longer gaps between. But when a project is active, we typically do push builds to the client um, every other week. So we will make content changes, then we will... um, internally test, then we'll typically have like our internal champion at our client company um, that will have a special like little test test uh, project that we are able to just deploy directly to them. So for example, that is something that we have set up uh, in Arbor in the past um, where we'll have like their headset on its own little I don't remember what it's called. Someone else made it just that for our company, but it's its own group, I think, um, within the organization. And so we'll push them the test build and then they'll be able to review it before it goes to everyone. Um, And then once we get the go ahead from them, um, then we will deploy to everyone. So it is a little scary when you're dealing with tens or hundreds or more headsets um, and deploying because, you know, we're pushing something as soon as they're connected to the Internet, they're going to get it. Um, So we do like to have that multiple um, checks between our content development and then making sure it passes our internal review and then our champion and then to everyone. So. when we do get new feature requests uh, from the clients or, or new content that they want, usually um, that just gets filtered into our project schedule. So it's not like we're making immediate changes to these projects. A lot of the training experiences are really, really time consuming to test just because we have to go through like so many different scenarios. Um, we had this one where if you repeat too many times. So if you fail and then repeat, repeat, I think on the third or fourth repeat, one of the um, NPCs is walking on the ceiling and it, and it, we miss, we had it as a known bug. Our uh, champion saw it and screamed because she was like, what's happening? So um, yeah, it's, it's funny. You get some really interesting visual things that happen, but we try to be very structured about when things get out to the larger group within an organization. Very smart. Is there any other quick advice you could give for um, XR champions in companies that are trying to navigate this landscape and wanting to win out, you know, pr- prove a uh, prove a pilot out? 
Yeah, uh, I, w- I would definitely say as fast as you're going to want to move, just be patient or have, have a little patience, especially when there are some new features that haven't been proven out before. Um, it, it's really exciting to work in immersive and innovative technology, but time is probably the thing that we wish we had more of always and that people are always rushing us on. So um, just know that any partner, us or someone else, uh, is going to be doing things to their best ability as quickly as they can. But sometimes, no matter how much money you throw at something or how many people you throw at something, it is not going to speed it up. Um, so just know patience is a virtue. and. Uh, your, your service provider is trying very hard to make something cool for you. That's good. Yeah, I think I think we, and I'll, I'll assume you as well, like we, we feel this kind of deep sense of responsibility um, to removing the friction, to, to making it, I mean, we're in this, this, this uh, phase of XR adoption where it's getting traction. I mean, it's getting hot in a lot of ways, but you still have this, I mean, you talked about the, one of the biggest challenges is just getting somebody in the headset. There still is this, you've got one shot at a first impression. And so, yeah, I mean, it's great to hear from somebody, you know, from an app developer and from your perspective of, of how you approach. And you work with a lot, I mean, a lot of companies you can't name, a lot of high-end clientele, um, you know, some smaller smaller companies as well, as well. And we both know, we all know just the difference of expectations, you know, across the spectrum. And so um, that's that's really, really Good. A um, couple of hot takes here to to bring it home. Uh, so one we, we always like to ask, um, 10 years from now, we, we look back, uh, what surprises us about XR? Oh, hold on. So 10 years in the future, I'm looking to now? 10 years in the future. Okay. Yeah, we look back. What surprises you? Okay. Um, what surprises all of us? Yeah. I think what will be surprising in the future about now is like how bulky the headsets are. I think they're going to be so sleek (laughs) in the future, kind of like, you know, phones. (laughs) I look at my first phone, it's like tiny flip phone, could throw it off a building and it'd be fine. But I think that will be probably one of the things we laugh about is how bulky and goofy they look. My dad had a car phone that had a cable. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Our kids will look back and say, what? What What were you guys using? (laughs) Like That's that's implanted in my brain. Um, Like, what? Mom and dad? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I uh, think that'll be funny. We're gonna have okay, implants. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Are we gonna all have uh, contact lenses and neural implants? Maybe so. Hopefully not. I'm not <laughs> I don't know if it's good or not. I welcome my yeah. cyborg future. <laughs> um, okay. One one other question. Uh, what's the most compelling enterprise use case you've seen for VR so far? Oh my goodness, that's a really tough one. It's a tough one, right? Compelling. I don't know how I'd answer that. I always hate asking most, right? Because then you think you got to pick the one. What is what is one one of the most compelling? Um, there was one we've done. I'll try to be a little vague about it. Where um, we did have to simulate like a flash fire, and I think it's very cool that we were able to show the chain of reactions that caused the flash fire in an immersive environment. So I think that is one of the coolest ones. Yeah, that's cool. I think, I mean, Will said earlier, the, the dangerous use cases, they're so powerful, right? I mean, you can put someone in that type of a situation over and over again, and they get their muscle memory, and they get, you know, so that when it happens in the real world, they're not surprised by it. So, um, well, Andy, this has been great. We, we really appreciate you taking time out of your day. I know you're busy uh, running your own company, 
And if somebody wants to find you, I know you're on LinkedIn. So Amy Eaton, Amy, Annie Eaton, and we'll have, we'll have some information down below. And then also your website is, is futurist.com. So uh, we really appreciate you being here today. Thank you so much. Great to talk to both of you. Man, it's always so fun to talk to Annie. She's got such a great energy. And I, I love the story of that aha moment when the group of employees who had not tried XR before put on the headset and then they wouldn't take it off. Because we all know how hard it is to, to explain what XR is to someone. And it's that moment when you put it on for the first time. Uh, it's just so cool. I know. And you know, for these companies that are implementing VR at some kind of scale, sometimes in multiple countries, I think they always have to. You always have to think about the end user who's going to put on the headset. Have they have they played a game before? You know, are they? We we've heard stories. She talked about how they developed a one minute intro for somebody to be able to put on a headset and in one minute get familiar with VR. And I love that. I think that's an insight that working with independent software vendors and content creators who actually are on the ground testing VR in the real world, you get these uh, these little nuggets. So it's fantastic episode. Uh, hope we can have her on again soon. And uh, if you want to hear more uh, interviews just like this, check us out on arborxr.com backslash podcast. We've got show notes, uh, links, resources, and full transcripts of each episode. And of course, you can find us wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Be sure to subscribe for more. Thanks for listening.